The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Rohini Kurup with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 25th, 2021. For today, I picked an episode from July 2019, where David Priest talks to John Mendez, former CIA chief of disguise, about technologies and disguises deployed by the CIA in Moscow during the Cold War. It's a fascinating conversation about advancements in spy tactics that allowed the CIA to elude the KGB. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 28, 2019. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Central Intelligence Agency had a major problem. The streets of Moscow were a virtually impossible operating environment due to heavy KGB surveillance and other operational difficulties. Through a series of trial and error and a whole lot of ingenuity, along came the Moscow Rules, a series of technical advancements in the area of disguise and communications technology and some different operating tradecraft that allowed the CIA case officers to get the information they needed from Soviet sources to help the Cold War stay cold and not develop into global thermonuclear conflict. John Mendez is a former Central Intelligence Agency chief of disguise who is also a specialist in clandestine photography. Her 27-year career, for which she earned the CIA's Intelligence Commendation Medal, included operational disguise responsibilities in the most hostile theaters of the Cold War, including Moscow, and also taking her into the Oval Office. She is the co-author with her late husband, Tony Mendez, of The Moscow Rules, the secret CIA tactics that helped America win the Cold War. I spoke with Jana about the experiences that she and her husband had at the CIA evolving the Moscow rules, applying these new disguises and new technologies in the service of national security. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 438, Jana Mendez on the Moscow rules. As context for the conversation here today, Jana, share a little bit about the course of your career and that of your co-author and late husband, Tony. I'll tell you mine first. We'll get that out of the way because Mm -hmm. it's a little less dramatic than, than Tony's will follow up with, with his, his entry into CIA. I sort of waltzed into a back door. I was in Germany. Uh, I had been there for a friend's wedding. She went off on her honeymoon, and there I was from Kansas, and I did not want to go home. So I got a job. I called Chase Manhattan Bank, found their number in the phone book. It said, you know, I was looking for a job. And they said, are you, um, they said, do you have a work permit? No. Have you worked in a bank before? No. Um, uh, what else? Oh, do you speak German? No. They said, well, come on in and talk to us. And they hired me. So that's how Had you I, learned German in between I learned those conversations? I just a little <laughs> bit. Not enough. Never enough. So um, that put me in Europe. And then I bumped into, or they bumped into me, a group of young Americans, American professionals, coming into the bank every so often, presenting themselves as Department of Army civilians, but they were not. Right. They were not. They were CIA. It was a young group of people from the CIA. And uh, they were great fun. So two years later, I married one of them in Switzerland. Um, he told me right <laughs> right on the way to the, to the wedding, he told me that he worked for the CIA. Good timing. Um, I think I said, what, what is the CIA? Because I was from <laughs> Kansas and I didn't know. And then off we went. Um, I was there for 27 years. 
Um, started as a secretary. Almost every woman, almost every woman I knew began in the typing pool. The competition was to see how quickly you could get out of the comp, you know, out of the out of the pool. So um, I ended up being the top secretary in an office with working for one man, thousand people. There was nowhere to go. So I told him I was going to go to the Smithsonian. I was sure there'd be an interesting job there for me. I could see the Smithsonian Castle from my from my uh, from my office window, and he said, "Well, I know you are an amateur photographer, and here we are, the Q branch of CIA. It's called Office of Technical Service." He said, "Why don't you take some of our photo courses?" So I did, and um, that opened up a whole new world. I went up in a in a in a <laughs> twin engine plane with a thousand millimeter lens and we shot all day. I was in a harness with a headset. It was one of the most fun days I've ever had and then developed the pictures that night in a in a dark room with big band music blaring and I said, okay, this is this is when people ask me, when did you start working for the CIA? That was it. This day would be the day. Right. So but I became a photo operations officer. You didn't stay in photos. You did you did disguises. You did a variety of other things. You did what? Before you what needed doing? Yeah. I did. Um, I did photo for some years. I went around the world teaching a lot of foreign assets how to use some of our proprietary uh, equipment, some really amazing uh, equipment, and then um, then I ended up in the subcontinent. We euphemistically call it, and I went home from that assignment. I was there for all summer. I went home and I said, I I think I would I would really like an assignment there. I'd like to work there, live there work out of that country. I said, well, you know, there aren't any photo jobs coming up. There's a disguise job. But I said, well, make me a disguise officer. And uh, they did. It took two and a half years. Yeah. Um, briefly, a little bit about Tony's resume. As Again, context for the stories that we'll be talking about here. Tony's Tony's entry is so much more fun. He was working. Uh, he was married, had three children with his first family. He was working at Martin Marietta in Denver, and in the evenings, he had, a, he had a gallery. He was doing commissions. He was always an artist. He was artist when the CIA found him. And um, the work he was doing, he was drawing wiring diagrams, electronics for the Titan II missile program. It was not art. And he saw an ad in the paper that said, wanted to work overseas, new U.S. Navy, please apply. So he did. And he met with some, his story is so funny, this guy in some kind of junky motel on the outskirts of Denver, guy with a hat on in the room, guy with a bottle of Jim Beam on the table, <laughs> showing him the recruiting paperwork and said, I don't know what they want. So Tony read it and he thought, I know what they want. <laughs> they want a counterfeiter forger. And Tony had exquisite hand-eye coordination. And so he did a work uh, sample for them and bam, they hired him. And it went from there. It went from there. Into was, some of the stories we will we will be was, talking about. It was quite a run. The The book that you co-authored recently with him is The the Moscow Rules, The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War. And there's no exaggeration there. That That is fact. Let's start with that. Let's start with The Moscow Rules. They came about for a reason. Talk about the operating environment in Moscow in the 1950s and early 1960s that led to the development of a whole new set of techniques and operational practices. Well, the environment basically was such that you couldn't work. There was so much surveillance on practically any American, official American in, uh, in the country, or the Brits, or the Western apparatus. We were all under surveillance real serious surveillance. They they were behind us. They were in front of us. They were, whether you were in a car, whether you were walking down the street, if you were in your apartment, they were in the walls. And if you were in your embassy, they were uh, among you because the foreign nationals that worked with us in the embassies were all considered to be KGB. And when you say they were in the walls, you're implying listening devices. But in some cases, you couldn't be sure that on the other side of that very thin wall was an actual surveillance officer. That's right. They were listening, and it wasn't like they were necessarily recording your conversations. A lot of this was live. Uh, if if they heard that you were getting ready to leave, they were ready to receive you at the gate as you exited, you know, whatever compound you were in. It was a really, really difficult place to work. Former director Dick Helms said once that it probably would have been easier to run an agent 
on the planet Mars than it was on the streets of Moscow in those days. Clearly, oh. something had to change. I loved that quote. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, something had to change. So when we were out there in the 60s, we were a young organization, so to speak, compared, say, to the British. They'd been doing this work for many, many years. And we, we actually, CIA, we modeled ourselves after after their model. And it was somewhat a military model. Uh, so we set up in the same way. But we didn't have the experience and we didn't really have the expertise yet. So we had this first case in, in, in the 1960s, Oleg Pinkovsky, and we were basically unable to handle him as a clandestine agent. We were unable to assure ourselves or him that he would be safe working with us. We had no way to protect him. Mm-hmm. That was the, the first case we talk about in the book. Yeah, but there was a reason to believe that it would be difficult to handle him because of what had happened earlier with some of our earlier agents and how things did not end well, uh, in part because of that harsh surveillance environment. It's almost impossible to run an agent under those conditions. And they knew that. I mean, that was the whole point. That was the whole point. If they pressed us that hard, surely, surely uh, we would not be able to accomplish our mission. And I think they also made it known in their society that anybody uh, caught working with us would suffer just all kinds of Really dreadful uh, endings. So this leads us to the what became known as the Moscow Rules, the new techniques, the new technologies, the disguise methods that were used to help solve this really sticky problem. Uh, let's mention just a few of them here, and I'm sure we'll get into more as we talk about the cases involved. Um, it's hard to believe now. It's hard to imagine days before some of these. But talk about working in the gap. What does that mean? Working in the gap was... Um, it sounds so simple, like you said. It sounds like common sense, which it was. But actually, almost all of the Moscow rules are nothing but common sense. Uh, working in the Gap was a discovery that even with, even with this kind of surveillance, with this nonstop embrace that you were inside of, with KGB, with their arms around you and your goings-on, there were still these moments, and you could construct them, you could create them, where you would have maybe five seconds where mm-hmm. you would be out of sight. Turning a corner. Turning a corner mm-hmm. is a really good way to do it. Mm-hmm. And we called that five seconds a gap. Then we, were, we worked on how to, how to extend it. Maybe could you get 10 seconds? Because if you could get 10 seconds, you could do something. So we, we used it on foot and we used it in cars. But in cars, we discovered that if you made a right-hand turn, it would take your surveillance because they wouldn't be inches behind you. They'd be feet behind you. It'd take them two, three seconds, four seconds to come behind you. But if you made two right-hand turns, for instance, after that second turn, you might have eight seconds. And in that eight that seconds— That makes an operational difference. That right? gives you an opportunity— to do something, okay. uh, to, to, to put down a, a, a car toss, mm-hmm. you know, to... Um, or eventually to adopt a disguise. Or to adopt a disguise. To, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, it was a cat and mouse game, and right. it was, it was um, very worthwhile from our point of view. One surprise even to me reading this book was that the brush pass was not a highly used technique until really developed and honed on the streets of Moscow. What, what is a brush pass, and how did it come to be perfected? Well, a brush pass, the idea was that you wouldn't have the, the uh, intelligence officer and his foreign asset really in the same place at the same time. They would pass by each other, and in that pass, you could hand something off. It was, it, it, it was a technique that took a little bit of practice, mm-hmm. uh, took a little bit of forethought. Actually, when we when we refined it to a point that we thought it was usable, we rehearsed it down here in downtown Washington D.C., the Mayflower Hotel. Right. Site of many many interesting things that have happened in Washington D.C. Uh, but I, the one the one that uh, I think we put in the book was we had a gentleman standing inside the door with a raincoat over his arm, and there was another gentleman that walked in, and I think he had a book in his hand, and just as they passed the. The raincoat shifted from the left to the right. Uh, the book equally moved, and there was a handing off of something small. And we had people witnessing this. We had some fairly senior CIA people, Karamasinas, witnessing this. 
And they said, so when are you going to do it? Right. <laughs> and it was done. That's the beauty of a good brush pass is even people looking for it don't see it. That's it's, right. It's the sleight of hand. And a lot of this book delves into the similarities between magic done for entertainment and sleight of hand, misdirection, illusion done for operational purposes. That's right. Uh, one, one good story you talk about quite a bit, uh, you and Tony bring up a lot in this book. It, it reminded me of my time working with John McLaughlin, the former deputy director of the CIA, who was a practicing magician and, yeah, and could that. perform with the best professional magicians in this area and would often entertain the kids at CIA Family Day with sleight of hand tricks. But it goes well before that in CIA history. Tony worked extensively with John Chambers. Who was who was John and how did that become useful for some of CIA's best Moscow rules implementations? Well, John Chambers was um, a makeup artist. He was the first makeup artist to win an Oscar for his work on Planet of the Apes. Tony went out to L.A. and worked with him on another movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Sure. I understand it was a terrible movie, but John Chambers' work was brilliant. So John Chambers is making monsters, and Tony's standing next to him sculpting at the same time. But Tony is working on human faces and looking very early on, looking at, could we make a mask? Could we somehow use these materials and these techniques in, in our work? Chambers, though, was much more, than a, much more than a makeup artist. Tony thought that John Chambers was maybe one of two geniuses he ever met. He thought the man was brilliant. Chambers introduced us to a lot of other elements out in Hollywood that were not makeup, but were um, special effects or um, some of the, the technologies that they used or the magicians. Mm -hmm. And not the performers, not the people who are putting on the shows, but the people behind the stage at the magic uh, shows who are engineering the deceptions and the illusions. That's what we were interested in. And that's what we were picking their brains about. And you already gave some examples of how that applies to to the intelligence work. And thank you for the subtle correction on John Chambers, not not a magician, but introduced Tony to many magicians and went to magic shops in the L.A. area to introduce him to possible techniques. Let's talk about applying some of those. You talk about identity transformation, which is a sounds like a euphemism, but it's a way of making sure that they're looking for person A. And instead, they're seeing person B, C, and D, and they, they just don't find person A. In fact, I thought maybe meeting you outside for this discussion today, <laughs> I might be looking for a tall Chinese man because you would be applying some of these techniques on me just as a joke. It's too hot. It's <laughs> or I might have. Well, that says something about the identity transformation <laughs> is that there is actual physical activity involved in some of these that does make it hard on the wearer. You know, the idea actually came from a DO case officer named Jack Downing. At the time, he was the deputy chief of station out in Moscow. And he uh, kind of came up with the concept because there was no other way that he could figure out to get out on the street without pretending that he was someone else. So he just happened to have one of our officers there at the time. And our officers tended to be a little edgy in their in their clothing styles and in their styles in general. And this particular officer wore cowboy boots and a Western a Western belt. And you have to place this into the context of what, the early to mid nineteen seventies. So yes. that that sounds outrageous, but at that time it, well it was still outrageous, let's be honest. It was edgy, but it yeah. wasn't yeah. it wasn't ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But not what Jack wore. Jack wasn't wearing bright orange pants and no, uh, cowboy no, no, boots. No, no, he wasn't. But but Jack thought, you know, this could work. Mm -hmm. I could pretend to be him. He talked to Tony. Tony came out. They put together this plan. And actually, Jack did that. He walked out of our embassy dressed as our technical operations officer, wearing boots. I understand they were quite uncomfortable. They didn't fit. And the belt and the mustache. And he walked right through the KGB surveillance and went and made his meeting and went back to Tony and said, we need to make this a program. And we, and we did, where we started a capability where we could switch people. And we would start planning it back in Washington before they ever, before they ever got to the airport in Moscow. You and you, you are the donor, you are the receiver, you are a match, and we can switch you back and forth. 
that came out of the magic community somewhat when we when we ended up talking to them. It goes to uh, their idea of using twins. We weren't using twins, but we were creating doubles, which is like the cousin of using twins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was very effective. And there was a purpose for all of this, to evade the surveillance, to have that brush pass, perhaps, with a an asset, one of the Russians providing information to the United States. This would give the case officer the opportunity to be out there without the KGB seeing the operational act. Or if they saw the operational act, they wouldn't actually register that it had happened. Why was this valuable? Because we had some outstanding assets in Moscow in the 1960s and 1970s. We did. You had to pass them equipment, other parts of the Moscow rules, in terms of developing equipment and the techniques and the technologies. You had to pass them things like the Tropel camera, the T-100. Talk a little bit about that remarkable device and how it how it played into your career when you were one of the first people actually developing the film from an asset using that camera. It was a remarkable tool. I just had a long conversation with, with a gentleman in the intelligence community comparing our satellites to the Tropel cameras and which one was the most effective tool during the Cold War. I used to say that the satellites were, you know, they were brilliant. They were earth-shattering, but they basically would give you the status quo. They'd show you what was there now. This is what's in Cuba. These are those missiles in Cuba. Or this is this is where they're building a, a nuclear. They would show us what was there. The little cameras, on the other hand, which were so small that we could put them in um, a fountain pen. Or mm-hmm. we could put them in a, in lipstick. a working fountain pen, no oh, less. Oh, they were all active concealments. Right. The fountain pen would work. The lipstick would mm-hmm. still do lipstick. The uh, A cigarette lighter that did produce flame. Right. It's remarkable. So that if your boss walked in and you had your camera in your hand and you had the minutes of the ad- or the agenda of the meeting in question on your desk mm-hmm. and you were photographing it, you could put the put the pen in your in your pocket, you could drop the lipstick in your purse, you could pull out a cigarette and light your cigarette, whatever would work. Um, they protected our agents and they collected the most significant intelligence of almost any other tool that we had. And you had the job of actually developing some of this film. What was it like developing film from a camera? The camera itself, I believe, was, what, an inch, an inch and a half long. But somehow 100 exposures could be kept there was inside a, that. There was a film cassette that inside, inside of that. I mean, the whole thing was loading the film for the agent was a, a precision operation that would have been better done in a Swiss watch factory, but we were doing it all over the world mm-hmm. with tiny strips of film. And they had removed the backing from the film. So the film felt more like saran wrap than it did the conventional film that you think of putting in your camera. And each each picture was a little black dot, and there were a hundred of them. And the, it, it, it was it was mind-blowing. And, and developing it because you knew that somebody had risked their life right. taking it, uh, you... You just, my heart starts beating talking about it. It was a high wire act for the agent mm-hmm. to take the pictures and for us to develop the film and to print it. And it landed, bam, on the president's desk whenever it came in. Came that, in. It, was, it puts a lot of pressure on you in the lab to get absolutely everything right because months, in some cases years, of asset spotting and assessment and development and recruitment and then the techniques and then the meeting and then the risk capturing that document on film, it's all gone if it doesn't go well. Yep. And you told a story in the book of one that did not go well, that there was a message, I believe, from one of our Russian assets that was unfortunately written in its secret writing on a kind of wax paper that made it incredibly difficult technically to extract his message. What happened there? That was a secret secret writing message by an agent named Trigon. His real name was Ogorodnik, another fabulous operation. In this book, you know, we talk about cases that have been talked about before. Mm-hmm. These are not new cases. But there's new information about the cases we're, here we're in talking terms of the ab- techniques. We're talking about the backside of these operations, what it took to get them going, what it took to support them. When people hear about secret writing, they think lemon juice, you know. The secret writing systems were incredibly elaborate. Uh, the, the, the way to develop them was equally elaborate. And when we would receive them from the agents, we, we would treat them like they were like they were precious. They were so the first thing we would do before we developed it is we would we would put a clear plastic piece over them and apply enormous pressure 
and trying to lift the latent image, that was just our insurance policy. Just in case. Just in case. And then we would take the actual message. We would get out a tray. They were usually cardboard with pinched corners. We would make the right solution to chemicals, and we would float the message. It was like being in a dark room and developing film. And then you'd you'd watch you'd watch the words come up. You know you had it, and then you'd pick it up and you'd pull it up, and we'd dry them on, like on a clothespin with uh, with clips. Well, the one you're talking about, the gentleman who developed it, um, went through all of those steps, and when he pulled it out of the developer, the the letters just all just dissolved and slid back into the. He actually saw chemistry. the effort failing in front of his eyes. He did. He oh. did, and this was a hugely important case. And so he came out, and Tony was there at TDY. He was just visiting. He came out and he said, you know, something something went wrong. So they looked at it, and it turned out that he had chosen like a butcher block paper. Think of a brown paper with kind of a wax on the back of it to keep moisture from going through. Well, that wax had dissolved in the alcohol that was in the developer, so it was gone. It was gone. And the chief of station, who happened to be Jack Downing again— mm-hmm. This was going to be his go or no go. Can we meet with you? It was a really important moment. Can we meet with Trigon again, the asset? They wanted to meet right. with him. They mm-hmm. needed to meet with him. So Tony had them um, pull out pull out all the old correspondence that they had ever seen in the man's handwriting. And the, the officer who had done the developing went into the photo dark rooms with all kinds of colored filters to try and get some contrast to bring up. And Tony started working with... Um, what they could retrieve from that clear plastic lift uh, from the old messages. And Tony didn't, couldn't read Cyrillic, and this was written in Cyrillic, and it, it was supposed to be written in block letters, but it was not. It was every piece of it was worst-case scenario. So Tony just starts doing that hand-eye thing, just copying what he can make out. He doesn't know if it even is words, and he's working on it, and Jack Downing comes and looks over his shoulder and reads it because he was fluent in Russian. And it said, um, "Yes, we can meet." Wow! It was like wow. one of those um, one of those amazing moments. One of those cases where a whole lot of work went into that, and every effort was going to be made yeah. to find that message. Now, I would always point out that case. Tony happened to be there at that moment mm-hmm. for that piece of it. That case was run by one of the first, well, the first female operations this officer, is Marty Peterson. Marty Peterson. Right. That was Marty Peterson's case. Yeah. And when she came home, when the case was all finished, mm. she um, she became a heroine for almost all of the women at CIA. Yeah. She was a tough, tough lady. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There is one, one of the toughest stories to read in the book is about the, the time that Marty went out. Mm. And suddenly she was accosted by the KGB. And something had clearly gone wrong. What's remarkable is what went wrong had nothing to do with the Moscow rules. It wasn't that the Moscow rules failed. It was, in fact, due to something that had happened long before when this asset was first recruited. But, That's right. But Trigon's story does not end well, does no, it? No, it doesn't. They, they arrested him. They arrested him. We had a translator working at CIA who, unbeknownst to us, was reporting to the Czechoslovakian intelligence service. They were reporting to the KGB, it came full circle. They they figured out it was Trigon and they arrested him. When 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 Marty went to meet him the night that um that she was arrested, he was already dead. 
But the back side of that story has is kind of interesting. We had made for him, at his insistence, an L pill, hmm. a lethal cyanide pill, and we had concealed it in a pin. Uh, we had milled out the cap of the pin very, very thin. It was there. Mm-hmm. You would never know it. And when when they had asked him to write his confession, mm-hmm. he said, I'll write it. Just let me have my pen. Give me my favorite pen. Yes. And he bit down on it, and yeah. and he was dead. Yeah. The whole thing was just a huge tragedy. But but some lessons were learned from it that applied in the next big case that you devote a lot of the book talking about, and that's the case of Adolf Tolkachev, a success story in so many ways. I mean, Trigon was important because he gave amazing insight into Soviet strategic thinking and some political decisions in the 70s and into the 80s. Tolkachev, however, he was the billion-dollar spy he's been called because his information on Soviet technology was so remarkable that he literally could have saved the United States billions of dollars. Uh, Tolkachev was was it, it just went uh, it went against the odds that we ended up with him. He had to approach he had to approach us in Moscow four or five times. Coming up to um, he didn't even know initially he didn't know he was talking to CIA. He was talking to Americans, and he said, "I want to help you. I have information." Things like for throwing you. notes into car windows that he thought were Americans. He ended at up, great risk to himself. He ended up at one point. He was banging on the car as it drove away because headquarters had said, "We don't think this guy is real. We think he is a dangle. We think he's a double agent. We don't trust him. We don't want you to have anything to do with him." So we just kept going by and ignoring him. But he persisted. Still, he persisted, and eventually, Gus Hathaway got permission to engage with him. And we discovered that this volunteer, this man that we did not recruit, as a matter of fact, we tried to discourage, turned out to be the bomb. He had uh, information for us about the Soviet technical approaches to their defenses, specifically having to do with radar, both airborne and on the ground, both offensive and defensive. Mm -hmm. And he was providing us with their next radar program about 10 years out, the schematics, the planning, everything you wanted to know. So I guess the Pentagon was just over the moon, and they, they were able to redirect their, their research and development. They were able to start building America's defenses to these systems before the systems were even produced. And and he produced, if I recall correctly, in extraordinarily high volume as well, that the amount of material he was getting, in fact, helped contribute to the development of devices that could capture more imagery more quickly so that that could go to a whole team that was set up to process the information he was providing. It was it was unimaginable. And and we knew when we, right. when we were running him, we knew right. what we had. It wasn't like we discovered later how important he had been. We knew from from really the first big batch of, of material that he gave to us. His value was was clearly high, and, and he knew it. But he also wanted a measure of respect. And one of those ways he wanted to get respect was saying, please pay me a, a lot of money. And by a lot of money, we're talking a salary greater than the president of the United States, ultimately. But that is also very risky to give someone in Moscow the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars in rubles. Why? And how did that create an operational conundrum that went back and forth in cables from headquarters to Moscow? It did. You know, he wanted – it was the way he was going to measure what we thought of him. He was a man who was stymied in his profession. He could not rise any further. Uh, his family had a history with the Bolsheviks. It would never be forgiven. So he was caught in this in this place. But he knew – he knew he was a billion-dollar spy, and he just wanted someone to pony up and, and show He didn't really have any way to spend that money. There was no way. There was nothing to buy. He couldn't do anything with it because it would draw attention. He just wanted to have it. In fact, uh, I think you noted in the book at one point when he thought he was coming under suspicion, there was one thing he could do with a stack of rubles. He burned them because he was afraid the KGB was going to discover this package from the CIA, which he, included a whole lot of money. He burned it. He burned his money. He burned everything we had ever given him, all the little tropel cam, everything in the fire or in the river. He got rid of it all. And yet at that point, he, he was not captured and he kept on going. Now, there were some missed meetings. There were a lot of times when the, the CIA was concerned that something was wrong, but it wasn't. And then there were some signs that something was wrong that they didn't pick up on when he was supposed to give a signal 
that he was, I believe, waiting for a meeting or that he had that he had delivered information. He put up the correct signal, which was opening a window in his apartment, but it wasn't the same window he had used before. And yet the officers were so desperate to meet with him that they may have overlooked that. What happened as a result? They wanted him to be okay. They wanted him to be alive and well. I mean, all of these operations are planned so meticulously. The details, it's all about the details. And there was a detail that they were willing to overlook because they just didn't want to believe that something had happened to him, that it had gone, that it had gone wrong. It's, uh, you know, one of the rules that we added relatively late is never fall in love with your agent. And um, we probably should have worded it a little differently because people think, oh, what, you know, a romantic encounter? No, 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 no. It started with Trigon. When Trigon, when when we discovered that he was dead, that he had bitten down on the cyanide and he was dead, Tony said um, all of Soviet East European division back in, in, in CIA headquarters was just devastated. Jack Downing was devastated. And Tony was devastated. It was personal. And you're not supposed to ever let it get personal. That's what it means. Well, the same thing with Tokachev. It was personal because the man was just, he was a giant. Right. And for years, for years, he had provided this information at great personal risk, checking out documents he wasn't supposed to, even signing out sheets, acknowledging he was taking these things home, knowing that someday it could end poorly. And of course, that day was October 22nd, 1986, when he was executed. Yeah. You know, he was told more than once to be careful hmm. to or, or just to stop, just to just stand back. Let's let's wait a year and let everything settle. And he would say, there is no turning back. Right. There's no turning back. And despite his request for money, which was a, a token of respect, that wasn't his real motivation, was no. it? No. And the motivation is always an interesting, an interesting uh, piece of this. What what does motivate these people? Uh, it's it's interesting to me that we we call out three people in this book, three main cases, a lot of other cases, but focusing on three main cases, and they were um, idealists. All of them. They they were working for the West. They believed in what they were doing. They wanted to make it a better world. That's that's one reason it hurt so bad when it didn't go well. There's. There's one device that I think we have to talk about that you reveal more about in this book than I'd ever seen before. You refer to it as the the JIB, an abbreviation, an acronym for the jack-in-the-box. Explain the technology of this and explain how it is useful operationally when you may have only a few seconds in that gap. How does the jack-in-the-box help you with that? Well, if you're in Moscow and you want to go see your agent and you don't want to lead surveillance to them, but you know that surveillance is going to be with you in your vehicle. And that was probably the scenario for many, many, many operations mm -hmm. that went on. Well, one way to get around that surveillance issue is to have this jack-in-the-box, this pop-up dummy at your, at your disposal. We could make one for you that would look just like you. We would make a face that was your face and hair that was your hair and put on a second set of clothes that were your clothes. It would collapse into a variety of things, started out in a suitcase, in a little, in a little briefcase, actually. And it was initially it was inflated with gas. Initially, it was what was called a party doll. That uh, we used to we used to buy them at Al's Magic Shop down on Sixteenth Street. Mm -hmm. We would send our young engineers down there, and they go in and they buy a half a dozen blow up dolls. Blow up dolls, which right. you know, if you only had to do that once, you would blush. But <laughs> you'd you'd say, "I'm I'm not going back in there." But we sent them back again and again because because things kept going wrong. One of the things that went wrong when we inflated them with um, this gas under pressure, these mm -hmm. cylinders. The gas would come out so cold, ice cold, mm. and it would freeze the mm. plastic party dolls, and they would shatter. shatter. They Whoa. would explode. This happened in one car behind the um, in the Eastern Block. They, they were they were testing one. One of the mm. wives was driving a car with a party doll that froze and blew she, she up. She must have been surprised when suddenly the passenger <laughs> next to her explodes. Um, yeah, that didn't go well. But but basically, we, we could use that. It got smaller. 
we took away the gas canisters, it became a, a scissor mechanism that would bring it up and down. This goes back to that behind-the-scenes uh, work with the magician's assistants, and it turned out to be one of the most elegant, just beautiful pieces of equipment. And after I left, it kept evolving, but I can't even talk about it sure. after I left, but it was, it, was, um, it was very useful. But from what you were able to get cleared and put into the book, there's, uh, I believe, a case that's really helpful and illustrative of, of the technology of you need to get somebody out of the car. And the second step is you need them to look like somebody else very quickly, and we'll get to that. But you need to get somebody out of the car. The KGB surveillance car normally is not bumper to bumper. Normally they hang back a bit, especially if you've taken weeks to yes. establish this route and make yes. phone calls to show why you're going where you're going. So several things have to happen. You have to create that gap. So as you're making that turn to give yourself the time you don't even apply the brake of the car because the KGB realizes if you're slowing down, something could happen. So you jack the emergency brake, which doesn't make the light go. And you take off the dome light yep. when the door opens. They don't see that. So somebody can quickly slip out of the car. You activate the jack in the box. The same person seconds later appears to be there. What happens to the person who has just rolled or jumped out of the car? Well, while he's driving with the surveillance following them, he is very easily putting on another disguise. And in this case, we would want him to look like some Russian that you would see on the street. And that could involve um, maybe a little bit of hair goods, might be a little bit of a mask, uh, some glasses, some clip-on teeth, a uh, little bit of vodka, splash on his chest, give him a piece of garlic, to, and out, out he goes on the street. And he's one of these old Russian pensioners who you see them everywhere. So when surveillance comes around that second corner, there's a Russian, old Russian man walking not away from them, toward them, and the car they're following is, is you know, and they speed up to catch up with it, and everything's cool. So they see a Russian on the sidewalk, as they've seen perhaps a dozen of times in the previous 10 minutes on their surveillance route, and they don't even notice because it's what they expect to see, and they're not looking for anything unusual there. Brilliant. That's right. And it's a combination of several of these techniques to all get somebody out to meet with an asset and not be discovered. It's one of the Moscow rules is it, it's amazing a person's ability to rationalize what they're seeing. That comes from the magic scene, actually. You know, you're, you know that that elephant that just walked across the stage and entered that box and, and now they're opening the door and the box is empty. Your rational mind knows that that elephant... <laughs> It's probably still there, but you can't. But you can't find it. Yeah. We, yeah. Were, we were trying to do that over and over. There's another uh, technique you only refer to briefly, but we, we have to talk about it, and that is the Murphy car. This is one you said it proved to be impractical. That doesn't mean there wasn't something there that worked, but what's the idea of the Murphy car? <laughs> it's one of... If I, if I sat in and listed the ideas that we had, that um, a lot of them that we did not do, that would actually make another great book. Mm -hmm. I have to think about that. The Murphy right. car was to have, because, because they knew all of our cars and they followed us very easily, it was to have another car that nobody knew was in the country. We could get it in. We could, we could bring it in. And, uh, but we would have to hide it. And so the idea was like a Murphy bed. It would just go up. In, in some secured storage room, maybe in the basement of the embassy, and and the CBs could build that. So that would be, they would be cleared, and they would know it was there. And then when you needed it, <laughs> bring it down. and You would literally fold a car into the wall. That was an idea. It was an idea. Another idea was to make a room that was not square, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, where you'd have a space between two walls where you could, you could, uh, you could keep a person for a while, maybe mm -hmm. someone who was trying to escape, someone who you wanted to. Right. There were so many, so many ideas. One of my favorites was probably the the Spider-Man, the apartment escape uh, device you you described that allows an individual to rappel down an apartment building quickly and then return up using an ascension device with a, a water device inside the apartment. Absolutely brilliant. The kind of thing that as soon as you see it, you say, well, of course we would use that. But somebody had to come up with that and actually test it. And you had the pleasure of working on some of those. Uh, we, we, we did. It was a, it was a, it was a challenging um, um, subject. It was like a competition to see who could come up with the 
the most outrageous thing that might actually still work. Yeah. And, and we used a number of them. The book isn't all fun. There's the story, of course, of, of Trigon, as we mentioned, of the execution of Tolkachev. There's also the story of some of the traitors, some of the Americans who decided, often for, for ego, to give up some of these assets themselves. In fact, I think it was Tolkachev was given up both by Edward Lee Howard and Aldrich Ames. It was a, a double whammy. Yeah, if if you didn't if you didn't believe this one, well, then maybe you would believe that one. It was mm-hmm. it was unthinkable, actually. And the downside of Howard was he not only gave up the the names of a couple of assets, he also gave up some of the Moscow rules and told the KGB, "Here are the ways that they were able to recruit and handle these people in plain sight." Obviously, these rules have adapted. This book isn't being written now about what's happening on the streets of Moscow. That's right. But are you at least confident enough to say? that you have no doubt that there are an updated set of Moscow rules building on what's described in this book. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure that they are. They were always they were always evolving. Um, they were the thing about this book is we no one ever wrote them down. It's if you were if you were working in CIA and you had an assignment coming up mm-hmm. to Moscow and you were going through the training, you would learn these rules, you would know them by the time you got to the streets of Moscow. Mm-hmm. You would just know them. It's 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 uh it's like a, a an operational manual for a for an intelligence officer in uh in the in the belly of the beast. The technology may not have been there, but part of me wants to build a time machine, which maybe OTS has worked on, but build a time machine and go back to nineteen fifty five with some of these techniques and see the miracles we could have worked in, in Moscow even earlier. Absolutely. Um, let me let me end with a, a conversation uh, about your co-author, about, yeah. about Tony. In the book, a line that he writes is that his experience in Moscow was, was truly amazing. And he said, operating on the hostile streets of Moscow during the height of the Cold War was the highlight of my career with the CIA. Now, people who know about Tony Mendez realize some other things he did, perhaps most notably in the public imagination, working on the Canadian caper, Argo, and rescuing Americans using one of the most advanced and intricate and backstopped methods of fooling an enemy. And yet he said, no, it's working on the streets of Moscow. Tell us a little bit about Tony's character and why that would bring out the best in him. Well, you know, the exfiltration from Tehran was a was kind of a one-off. It was a particular situation that required an amazing imagination to come up with a solution. There mm-hmm. were no solutions. As a matter of fact, when, when everything was done with the Iranian Revolution, the only piece of it that worked for President Carter and the United States government was was that was the Canadian caper getting those people out. Everything else you couldn't negotiate. They kept they kept the others for a year. So that was a brilliant piece of work, but it was a one-off. The Moscow account was an ongoing— This was an evolution across two decades of his life. Yeah. He was working on that account for a good part of his career. Mm -hmm. Tony was uh, in Moscow multiple times, um, but on a couple of occasions, Jack Downing was there. He was either the chief of station or the deputy chief of station. Mm -hmm. And they had this this ongoing conversation. They were great friends at the end of all of this. I think they were almost like brothers. I just saw Jack Downing in Seattle on, mm-hmm. on, on that book tour, and uh, he loved this book. But they, this was their project to see if they could defeat the KGB, if they could fool them, how could they do it, how could they leverage that for the purpose of the United States government. It was um, It was a great competition, and I think they felt that they won the part that they were playing. They felt very good about the intelligence they were able to collect mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the, the difference it made to the United States government. Yeah. yeah. Years ago, you wrote a remarkable book with Tony, uh, Spy Dust. Yeah. And he's written some other things talking about his life and, and his career, as, as have you. Uh, but this book is, is special uh, in part because of what it describes, the actual techniques and the intersection of the personal stories with some of the the real operational successes uh, from that technology. But it's also the last book that you'll co-author with, with Tony. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what, what you want his legacy to be, not only for future intelligence officers who are carrying forward his trailblazing legacy, but also for the people of America who may know a story about Argo but don't realize how many lives he saved. 
Well, I think intelligence officers really um, appreciate what he did because they can see inside of that process and they know what's involved. The, the, the bravery of going into Tehran, that's, that's one thing. Um, I think a lot of our officers, when, when asked to, could respond in that way. I mean, look at, look at, look at those that went into Afghanistan mm-hmm. after, after 9-11. Mm-hmm. But some of these other ideas that are in this book that required really a, a kind of cunning and a kind of um, appreciation for deception and illusion and an adherence to those rules of the magician, I think those are things that set Tony Mendez apart. He never set out to have any of his stories told. When George Tennant told him to tell the story of Argo, initially, Tony said, no, that's that's still classified. Tennant said, uh, I think he said, no, it's not. I can change that. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, Tony. Right. And, and it was hard for him to speak about that story at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he kind of got up ahead of steam. And I mean, this is this is the fourth book. That's right. So it's it's not a bad legacy to leave behind. Well, here at Lawfare, we, we like to look at the big picture national security issues and how they intersect with law and policy. And there, there's no better example of national security intersecting with policy than the role of intelligence informing both and seeing how that's done from a very tactical level of how do you get around the corner for an extra two seconds? And then how do you appear like someone you're not? Connecting that to the asset who provides information that saves the U.S. billions of dollars and perhaps would have won the Cold War for us had it turned hot. That's the kind of thing that shows the value of of Tony Mendez and the work of officers like him and you working on these issues that don't get much attention. I think another thing we tried to put in here um, that that was important to us to, to write it down, to write about it, is how important it was to protect those foreign assets. And so much of what we did was generated by the need to keep the KGB away from our foreign assets and to try and keep them safe. Now, we lost a lot of them. We lost mm-hmm. a lot of them in the 80s mm-hmm. um, because they were betrayed here and there. They, they, we didn't lose them because of the Moscow rules. But, but the whole point of the exercise was to protect them, to see if we couldn't keep them safe. And that was one thing that would get you out of the bed and, and go into work on the worst snow day of the year. You'd think, you know, I have stuff to do. It's important. Jonna, thanks for talking to us about the Moscow rules, the secret CIA tactics that helped America win the Cold War, and a little bit about yourself and Tony. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Jonna Mendez for coming on the show. Please do share the podcast, rate the podcast, talk about the podcast, whatever you can do to help us spread the word. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Vishnu Kanan was our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.